God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book of Job. Job chapter 34, verse 5. And in Job 34, verse 5, we read, For Job hath said, and these are Elihu's words concerning Job, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. Whenever we have improper beliefs of our own righteous character, it is wrongly assumed that tragic events in our life are divinely unfair. So that if we lack faith in God's greater plan for our lives, then all we can see is our present misery. Job's words contain an absoluteness on two accounts. First, in his own pure righteousness. Secondly, in his wound being incurable. Both assumptions were proved wrong by the Lord. For Job was not as righteous as he thought, and God did restore his life back to health. Sickness and pain then can easily cause men to view themselves as overly pure and their hope of recovery as potentially unrecoverable. But like with Job, neither of these conclusions will prove true. We are also not so righteous that our Christian lives must be without thorns. And though in the moment it may seem implausible that God can deliver us, if we continue to have faith in God's fairness, then God shall be justified, even as we shall not believe that we are nearly as perfect as we once thought we were. Verse 7 now. What man, again Elihu speaking in regards to Job, what man is like Job, who drinketh up scorning like water, which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity, and walketh with wicked men? For he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. Benson on this verse. Who drinketh up scorning like water, that is, abundantly and greedily, who does so break forth into scornful expressions, not only against his friends, but in some sort even against God himself. The Hebrew may be interpreted, what man, being like Job, would drink up scorning? That a wicked or foolish man should act thus is not strange, but that a man of such piety, gravity, wisdom, and authority as Job should be guilty of such a sin, this is wonderful, which walketh with wicked men. Although I dare not say he is a wicked man, yet in this manner he speaks and acts like one of the wicked. For he has said, not absolutely, and in express terms, but by consequence, it profiteth a man nothing, end quote. Job's claim that God destroyed the blameless with the wicked shows his agreement with wicked men. Job 9.22 This is one thing, therefore I said, he destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. Confirming also the improper and erroneous belief that if the righteous are taken with the wicked, then what profit is it for a man to delight himself in God? It is also the spiritual blindness in sinners that blocks them from perceiving the great profit it is for men to delight themselves in the Lord. The real truth as well is that no man can bring more profit to his life 
than when he draws near to God. Since God has revealed himself as a rewarder of those who seek him, a savior of those who draw near to him, and that by drawing near to God, we are promised to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. No man also has sincerely trusted in the Lord and not been abundantly blessed by the Lord. For those who call upon God with a pure heart shall greatly see God's manifold and abundant blessings in their lives. This is what the scriptures state, and this is what every truly godly man will experience, that those who delight themselves in the Lord will be blessed by the Lord. And in Psalm 1, verse 1, we read, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he, this man, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. All true delighting ourselves in God has as its principal action delighting ourselves in God's word, God's laws, and God's son. He also who truly desires sweet fellowship with the Lord will rely on God's word to gain it. One, because if a man's roots are in God, there is a certainty that fruit shall ultimately be born in his life. Like a tree planted by rivers of water, those who place their trust in the Lord shall grow in both size and abundance. Two, because also a man delights himself in God, he shall not be bound by the droughts and uncertainty of worldly circumstances in this world. This was true of Joseph, and it shall be true with us, so that no matter the dryness or barrenness of the climate of the ungodly, those who trust in God are promised by God to flourish. Three, lastly, because of his dependence on the Lord, the man who delights himself in God shall prosper in all his ways. Ellicott on Psalm 1.3, All that he doeth he maketh to prosper, which may mean either the righteous man carries out to a successful end all his enterprises, or all that he begins, he brings to maturity, end quote. And Benson on Psalm 1-3, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. All his actions, being directed by the word, providence and the grace of God shall be crowned with success in one respect or another. For even disappointments, losses, and afflictions shall work for his good and with a blessed effect or end, end quote. Whenever then ungodly men assert that there is no profit from delighting themselves in the Lord, they show extreme ignorance to the reality of life. For none can observe a truly godly man and not see the profit that godliness has brought to his life. Since godliness is profitable to all things, the fruits of it shall be visible 
both in this life and in the life to come. And in 2 Timothy 4.8 we read, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Observe as well that any who foolishly believe that there is no profit in following God have never been close enough to the Lord to experience what God would have done in their life had God been their true delight. Job 34.10 Therefore, hearken unto me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Matthew Henry on this. Elihu had showed Job that God meant him no hurt by afflicting him, but intended his spiritual benefit. Here he shows that God did no wrong by afflicting him. If the former did not satisfy him, this ought to silence him. God cannot do wickedness, nor the Almighty commit wrong. If services now go unrewarded, and sins now go unpunished, yet there is a day coming when God will fully render to every man according to his works. Further, though the believer's final condemnation is done away through the Savior's ransom, yet he has merited worse than any outward afflictions, so that no wrong is done to him, however he may be tried, end quote. Elihu summons those present to hear his words lest previous arguments of both Job and his three friends had infiltrated and marred their thinking concerning God's justice. It is far from God to do any wickedness and beyond the reach of possibility for the Almighty to commit iniquity. Hence, it is never God who sins against man, but man who sins against God. Elihu thus draws a line in the sand regarding the impossibility for God to commit sin by either allowing trials or subjecting men to the consequences of their own sins. This is often the sinner's main claim against a holy God. For he who will not admit his own sin will then lay charge that God has somehow sinned against him. Hence, if a man or woman is not humble and subject to the Lord's will for their life, and it crashes down upon them, then they can very quickly accuse God of being unfair to them. Sinners, consequently, because of personal conceit, will regularly charge God with crimes that they alone are guilty of. It is this perversion of truth that Elihu seeks to openly address before those present, who had either observed or aware of Job's afflictions as the Lord will absolutely not do wickedness, and neither will he commit iniquity. Hence, when consequences arise because of sin, whether it is known by the sinner or not, the blame always lies on the sinner. Verse 11 now. For the work of a man shall he God render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Barnes on this. For the work of man shall he render unto him. He shall treat each man as he deserves. And this is the essence of justice. Of the truth of this also, 
there could have been no question. Elihu does not indeed apply it to the case of Job, but there can be little doubt that he intended that he should have such a reference. He regarded Job as having accused God of injustice for having afflicted woes on him, which he by no means deserved. He takes care, therefore, to state this general principle that with God there must be impartial justice, leaving the application of this principle to the facts in the world to be arranged as well as possible. No one can doubt that Elihu in this took the true ground and that the great principle is to be held that God can do no wrong and that all the facts in the universe might be consistent with this great principle, whether we can now see it to be so or not, end quote. Divine justice demands that what men have sown, they shall reap, Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This principle will hold true both in spiritual and earthly things. The seeds we sow, whether we we are aware of them or not, will determine the crop produced. God, therefore, shall not be mocked, but especially so in regards to men reaping as they have sown. The rules also by which God governs life are not determined by either the false hopes or foolish beliefs of men. The life then that men possess has at its foundation how men have chosen to live. A man's own ways then ultimately determining what God renders to him in his life. Verse 12 now. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. Job had maintained that God had dealt unjustly with him in either not hearing his case or improperly ruling before Job could present his defense. By this, Job had condemned both God and God's justice in order to maintain his own righteousness. This teaches us the great lengths that men will go in order to continue to believe themselves as pure in their own eyes. So far as being willing to judge God's heavenly justice as wrong and God's person as unfair. So important then is self-righteousness to those who rely on it that even incriminating God as an unrighteous judge, judge does not seem as improper. The sin in a man, no doubt, causing him to believe himself so much more pure than he really is. And because of this, he will often lack the perception to know that his own heart, life, and actions are the cause of his misery and not God. Since the Lord cannot pervert judgment, nor judge unfairly in any man's life, to do so would be a heavenly crime, a crime also God is incapable of committing. Verse 13 now. Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Or who hath disposed the whole world? The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on Job 34, 13. If the world were not God's property, as having been made by him, but committed to his charge by some superior, 
it might be possible for him to act unjustly, as he would not thereby be injuring himself. But as it is, for God to act unjustly would undermine the whole order of the world, and so would injure God's own property. End quote. If men do not believe that God has made both the world and man, then they will surely not yield to God's right to rule. All power that the Lord exerts in the earth stems from his own ownership of it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And for this reason, all shall be either blessed or judged as he sees fit. Men also are often prone to judging the Lord's dealings in the earth only after they first believe themselves to be its rulers. Hence, the conflict that men have with God often has its base, whether God has the right to rule and ultimately judge his own creation. Since also the pride of man has caused him to believe that it is he who should govern the world and not the Lord. Verse 14. If he set his heart upon man, or if the Lord would set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, Barnes on this verse. The argument seems to be this. If God wished such a thing and should set his heart upon it, he could easily cut off the whole race. He has power to do it. And no one can deny him the right. Man has no claim to life, but he who gave it has a right to withdraw it. And the race is absolutely dependent on this infinite sovereign. End quote. Elihu's argument is thus. If men think they have a right to challenge God in earthly judgments and or the trials they might need to endure, then they have completely forgotten that their entire existence is dependent on God's grace. Elihu's position then is, do not question God in smaller judgments, lest a far greater judgment be administered. For if God set his heart upon man to fully execute judgment for his sins, then God could gather all breath life and return it solely to God's own possession, teaching us that all life is God's, whether it's flesh life or spirit life, even as all life is either extended or shortened according to God's will. For he who first gave man life can just as easily, if he so wills it, remove it from him. Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, and the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse 15 now of Job 34. All flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. He then who has power to create can, if he chooses, cause all men to perish together. Who and what men are is solely because of God's discretion. To forget this is to forget what man is and the power God has. Verse 16 now. If now thou hast understanding, hear this. Hearken to the voice of my words, Elihu speaking. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked, and to princes, you are ungodly, 
How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor? For they all are the work of his hands. In a moment shall they die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight, and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away without hand. Elihu continues to argue the case that God has a right to govern his creation. Verse 17, Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Every man, if he is honest, will admit that he has not only been tempted to judge God's ways, but also questions God's right to govern and bring judgment to his life. Hence, if men think too much of themselves, they will not hesitate to judge God's government. By doing this, though, they reveal themselves as rebels against the Lord's divine rule. Verse 21 now. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. The reason that God can act fairly and with sure justice is because of God's omnipotent nature. Because God can see all and his eyes observe all man's goings, including all that lies in men's hearts, it remains impossible for him not to actually render to men what they themselves have sown. The eyes of the Lord able to see that which is within all men, regardless if they attempt to hide it from him or not. Gill on this verse. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, which denotes the omnipotence of God, which reaches to every man, to every individual, and to all men in general, and to their ways, to every step taken by them, to the whole of their lives and conversations, and every action of them, to all their internal and external ways and goings. Perhaps the former may be meant in this and the latter in the following clause. This may denote all their inward thoughts, the workings of their mind, the imaginations of their heart, all their secret purposes, designs, and schemes, and all the desires and affections of their soul, and all these, whether good or bad. And he seeth all his goings. Again, the Lord sees all his goings. The whole of his walk and conversation, conduct and behavior, all his external ways, works and actions, and these whether of good or bad. Uh, Psalm uh, 139.1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, end quote. It is a foolish thing to attempt to hide anything from God, especially hidden sins committed against him. Equally as foolish is to presume that God could be misled to lay upon man more than that which is right. Because the Lord has full knowledge of all things, he lacks no evidence in order to judge men properly. Because also God sees everything, he can judge all things accurately. Verse 24, he shall break 
in pieces, mighty men, without number, and set others in their stead. Therefore he knoweth their works, and he overturneth them in the night, so that they are destroyed. He, God, striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Because they turned back from him, and would not consider any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come unto him. And he heareth the cry of the afflicted. When he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can behold him? Whether it be done against a nation or against a man only, that the hypocrite reign not, lest the people be ensnared. God's power to overturn not only the leaders of nations, but also the nations themselves is seen here. Since the Lord knows that the wicked have turned back from following him, the none shall escape his judgment. None, therefore, not even kings and or princes, shall turn back from following the Lord and presume to think that God shall not recompense them according to their ways. The contrary argument to this is, When God gives peace, who can make trouble? See, all power to give quietness or create unrest belongs to God. Consequently, it is foolish for men to resist God's will. Verse 31 now. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend anymore. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. It is common, even in the Christian's life, that he remains ignorant of his sins against God. For this reason, God must be sought to teach us how and when, either in heart or action, we have offended him. The reason also for seeking God's counsel as to the origin of our sin is so that we might not do it again as any ignorance regarding how we have sinned can easily cause us to commit it again. It is also for this reason that we must be taught by God both the nature and the degree of our sin so that the impression is great enough that we will choose not to engage in it again. Verse 34 now. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it. Whether thou refuse or whether thou choose, and not I, therefore speak what thou knowest. The King James Version does not easily reveal the essence here. Other translations read, the NIV, Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Or the new King, King, excuse me, or the new King James Version, should he repay it according to your terms? Just because you disvow it, you must choose and not I. Therefore speak what you know. And now the Holman Christian Standard Bible, should God repay you on your terms when you have rejected his? You must choose not I, so declare what you know. It is not man who makes rules regarding sin, but God. Not man who sets the terms for chastisement or its duration, but the Lord alone. Benson on this verse. Should it be according to thy mind? Having advised and directed Job how to conduct himself and what to say to God in his afflicted state, 
he now proceeds to enforce his advice with solid arguments. Should it, namely, God's chastening of thee, about which the great controversy was, be according to thy mind? Or, as thou wouldest have it, shall thy opinion or affection give laws and measures to God, that he shall afflict only such persons, and in such a manner and measure, and so long as thou choosest? Does God need, or should he seek for, thy advice how to govern the world, and whom and when to reward or to punish? Dost thou quarrel with him, because he chastises thee more severely and longer than thou expectest? End quote. Not until men realize that God sets the terms for all things, will they then humble themselves sufficiently enough to learn and yield to him. How often also do men get lost in the lie that they can set the terms for either salvation or blessing. The pride of man often assuming that God must meet his terms and not he God's. Verse 34 now. Let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job has spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. Elihu's claims are not that Job was a wicked man, as his three friends asserted, but rather that he was a man absent accurate knowledge of God, and uttered words without wisdom. This is the same correction that the Lord lays charge against Job for. And in Job 38, 1 and 2, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Amen.